So today I'm going to start things off a little bit differently than we um, than we often do. Um, we're going to engage a, a very old story. Um, for some of us, it's probably a familiar story, but I'm hoping today to enter it in a little bit of a unique way, enter it a bit with our imaginations. So I'm going to join you in imagining with me this story. I'm going to speak it from the voice of, of someone else. The trumpet rang out at the temple, calling us back to worship. It was the second service of the day, and I was coming to worship, like I always do, when my husband Zechariah is ministering. I don't know what you know about our form of worship, so I'll paint the picture for you. After nearly 40 years as a priest's wife, I know what to expect. Zechariah is one of 8,000 priests currently ministering to Israel. They have to take turns ministering in the temple. So each division is called to Jerusalem at a week at a time, twice throughout the year. We come for those weeks when the clan of Abijah is ministering. At the beginning of the week, the priests are divided into seven smaller groups, and each of them is assigned one day to perform the many temple duties. Zechariah has to get up while it's still dark, on the day that he's serving in the temple. There are many tasks for the priests to attend to, from hearing confessions from those of us who gather to worship, to overseeing the sacrifices of the lambs, baking the bread that's part of the sacrifice, maintaining the fire that keeps the lambs always burning before the divine. Many of the tasks are assigned by drawing lots. On his service day, after he arrives and he purifies himself by bathing in the mikvah, or ritual bath, and clothes himself in the priestly garments he wears, the first lots are cast. Who's going to clean the altar? Who collects the ashes on it from the day before? Who polishes the menorah? Who fills the lampstand with oil? All of these tasks and more are determined by the lots. There are services every morning and every late afternoon. In each service, a fresh, unblemished lamb is sacrificed. Other religious activities happen throughout the day in the hours the temple is open, but the most sacred part of the day takes place at the ninth hour, what you might call 3 p.m. This is the hour of prayer, our hour of confession, when most worshipers have finished their work for the day, and they can come to the temple and gather to name, to come close to each other and name and speak our truths to the divine. It's during this time that the lot is drawn for the task with the highest honor, burning the incense in the Holy of Holies. The priest who receives this task engages in the most sacred act a human being can engage in. We believe that the incense that's offered alongside the sacrifice carries all the prayers of our people to God. Some even say an angel is present amidst the smoke who delivers the prayers directly to the divine throne room. No other person comes as close to the divine presence as this priest offering incense. After the priest burns the incense in the Holy of Holies and he exits the space, 
he turns to the crowd. Some of us are kneeling. Some of us are holding our hands in the air. All of us are awaiting the blessing of this priest who has just been in the most sacred of spaces we know. He holds up his hands in a sacred sign of blessing, and he pronounces words that we all receive with gratitude. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. You know, there have been stories of priests experiencing some sort of divine revelation in the holiest of holies. But it's a very rare experience. The task is considered so special, in fact, that each priest, if ever chosen by lottery, is only allowed to perform this task once in his entire life. In the nearly 40 years we've been coming here, Zechariah has never been chosen. When he's on duty, I like to attend both services. The morning service is announced by three trumpet blasts before the gates open wide. I usually gather with the other wives of Abijah, of, our, of the priests we head in the, in the group of Abijah. We head to the court of women together. We stand in the front. We keep an eye out for our husbands. Some of the women are now watching their grown sons serve as priests. I've known these women for decades. I've seen their toddlers grow into some of the priests before us or become some of the other wives standing amongst us. I'm not watching for my own son, though. Zechariah and I never had children. Some of the women won't come close to me because of that. I was there in the court of women. I saw him that afternoon at the beginning of the hour of prayer. Zechariah had caught my eye. He had been searching for me in the crowd, and when he saw me, his gaze was fierce and still, and then he held it up. We had just drawn the lot. This was the time he'd been waiting for his entire priestly career. Today, my husband would enter the Holy of Holies. By now, some of you may have recognized this story or the story that the story is connected to. The tale I've been telling you is, is an imagined version, but it's based on a character we find in the New Testament, a woman named Elizabeth. And Elizabeth, like many of the women in the Bible, isn't the central focus of the narrative she appears in, right? Her story is definitely referenced. She is in the narrative, but generally the focus is more on the other people she's connected to, her husband her famous younger cousin, the child she would eventually have. But as we begin this season of Advent, which is a season of preparation for the arrival of the divine that we experience at Christmas, I found myself reading this familiar story and noticing something this week that I just hadn't really paid attention to before. And it made me pay closer attention to Elizabeth and to consider a bit more deeply who she might have been, what her experience was alongside her husband, the priest. And so as we continue and we read our text for today, I want to continue considering afresh her experience, her husband's experience, as we pick up the story 
And we'll turn from hearing it in Elizabeth's imagined voice to the voice of Luke, as he writes in the first chapter of his gospel. And picking up right from where Elizabeth left us off. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside, and then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him, turn the hearts of parents to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I know this will happen? For I'm an old man, my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. And when he did come out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. And when his time of service was ended, he returned to his home. After those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she remained in seclusion. She said, this is what the Lord has done for me in this time. When he looked favorably on me and took away the disgrace I have endured people. All right, so we've heard this story now in two parts. The prologue I gave you in Elizabeth's imagined voice, which does relate some of what scholars can reconstruct about the world of worship that Zechariah and Elizabeth were a part of. And the second comes from the scripture itself, right? For me, knowing more about the setting in which the story takes place actually helps me appreciate it a bit more. It helps me be able to like experience the drama, that it, it, it feels more real. I imagine Zechariah emerging from the tent to the crowd who is now expecting him to pray for them. As he lifts up his hands in the sign that many of us Gentiles would likely associate more with Star Trek's Dr. Spock than with blessing, but observant Jewish folks may know that actor Leonard Nimoy actually took inspiration for his Vulcan greeting from his time spent in the synagogue as a boy. This is the blessing of the priest. Yep. And along with that traditional blessing comes the benediction, the benediction that comes from Moses, that comes from the book of Numbers. The priest speaks it. And the crowd around Zechariah at the temple was waiting for it. They were there. They were ready. This is the big apex climax moment of every worship service. When the priest comes out after having been in the Holy of Holies and shares the blessing over the people who are gathered. Which perhaps, like how dramatic it would have been, right? For him to come forth 
unable to speak the blessing. This is his big moment. He only gets one, possibly, in his whole life to speak this blessing. And here he is, and he can't say it. Like, wow, having, he's, he's gesturing wildly. You can imagine what a moment, right? Trying to explain why he can't actually say the words. How startling it must have been, both for him and for his wife of decades, Elizabeth which perhaps helps illuminate her response, what I find interesting. A response that is spoken so briefly that if you just kind of read through Luke, as most people do in this first chapter, we're getting to the big part, right, where Mary comes on the scene. If you just kind of read through it, it's easy to overlook. But what struck me reading this passage anew this week was this small detail at the end. Elizabeth conceived and for five months remained in seclusion. Why did she do that? While there's plenty of scholarship that can tell us about practices in the ancient world, including all the customs I just shared around temple worship, uh, we don't have any historical record of women going into seclusion because they're pregnant. There's no evidence that Elizabeth is like observing some sort of prescribed cultural custom of the day. Her decision to withdraw from the world in some way to hide herself, which is kind of what the language of the Greek seems to communicate, that is a personal one. So why does she do it? And how might her decision to withdraw, to seclude herself for a period, perhaps be an invitation to us as we begin this Advent season? Luke doesn't tell us what this seclusion's about, but I think it's worth pondering together what this little detail of the story might illuminate for us. I'm going to offer a few things that come to mind, at least for me, as I consider this question of Elizabeth and her withdrawal for the first five months after her and her husband encounter the miraculous. Perhaps, I think, Elizabeth's withdrawal is at least in part her way of entering the mystery that was unfolding around her and within her. The mystery began that day that Zechariah was given that opportunity of a lifetime to draw the lot, to burn the incense in the Holy of Holies. He stepped into that most private, sacred space available to his people. He encountered the divine messenger, giving him news that was confounding, almost impossible to believe. He and Elizabeth had spent decades praying for a child. That child had never come. They had watched their friends and peers not only have children, but they'd likely seen those children grow up and have their own. What the angel was speaking, that was the stuff of biblical legends. It's like the stories of Abraham and Sarah, who finally received a child of promise long after it had been thought impossible. It's like the conception of, of Samson, the first Nazarite, a person who had been set aside for the divine in a unique way, never having strong drink on their lips, just like this angel is speaking, will be true of this child. It was like Hannah and her son Samuel, who grew up in the, in the temple and became the first prophet. And now these stories Zechariah had studied throughout his life, it was like these legends from long ago, the stories of his faith were coming to him. 
in the holiest of holies. But Elizabeth, she wasn't in that sacred space. She has to watch it from the outside. She doesn't get the encounter with the angel. She has to make her way through confusion as she watches her husband come out of the tent and then struggle to communicate without his voice. For her, the miraculous space she was encountering, the divine presence, was not in the temple in Jerusalem. It was within the temple of her own body. Perhaps Elizabeth withdrew from the world around her so she could focus on and engaging that sacred space to encounter the mystery her husband had encountered with an angel. I wonder what the first signs for Elizabeth were that this miracle her, that her husband, that kept her husband from speaking was actually taking place. Like, I wonder if she'd already stopped having her monthly periods, and so maybe that wouldn't have been a reliable predictor of what's going on. Did she feel nauseous, as many of us moms do in the early weeks? Did she feel, like, super tired? And what feelings, emotionally, would those earliest physical signs have brought up? I'd imagine there were many. Wonder, sure. Elated, surprise, powerful joy, hope, expectation. Finally getting a taste that perhaps this hope that, sh that had long been deferred was coming to pass. But there was also likely fear. What if the pregnancy didn't last? What if her aging body couldn't actually carry it forward? There may have been twinges of grief. What does it mean to finally conceive this late in life? Would her and Zechariah have time to see this child into adulthood? And of course, as the pregnancy continued, as her stomach swelled, her confidence grew, it seems there was ultimately sacred gratitude. This is what the Lord has done for me in this time, the text tells us. I wonder if the seclusion might also have been an act of solidarity with her husband's silence. Zechariah had had his voice taken away from him. That in of itself, I'm not really going to speak to how do we think about that. But it had happened. However we think about what the angel was accomplishing by taking his voice, um, Elizabeth has to respond. And Elizabeth chooses not to be the one that's out in public speaking on her husband's behalf. In a way, she enters the silence with him. Her withdrawal is her own practice of muteness. There's likely a practical wisdom to this. If Elizabeth started going around town and then telling everyone why Zechariah wasn't speaking, what had happened to him in the temple that an angel told them they were going to have a baby, their friends would probably have regarded them with a mix of laughter, scorn, and maybe, like, concern. No one would probably have believed his story. It was too out there. Better to allow the story to tell itself. Better to allow her swollen abdomen, months in, speak to where they had disappeared to the next time they show up at temple worship. In the meantime, 
Both Elizabeth and Zechariah engaged the growing mystery through a season of solitude and silence. But the silence doesn't last forever. The withdrawal for each of them is only for a period, and at the end of it, their voices ring out strong. Both Elizabeth and Zechariah seem to experience productive silences. Something deep, internal, and sacred takes place during that time. And when their times of withdrawal are over, they both make clear they have been profoundly moved, their faith profoundly strengthened through the period of quiet. They move from silence to proclamation. For Zechariah, his voice comes back in the context of his son's dedication ceremony. After the miraculous baby is born, he's taken to the temple on his eighth day to be circumcised, officially named, and the community assumes that this baby will be named after his father, as is often the custom. But remember, this is no customary birth. So Elizabeth tells those gathered that no, the child is John, and Zechariah affirms this first in writing, and then miraculously, his voice is just restored, and he bursts forth with a profound song that praises God for all the ways the divine has shown mercy to their people, including through the birth of this child, and the way he is to point the way, like the prophets Chris spoke of, for the other child who is to come. It's as if this nine months of silence has allowed this song to grow within him, and now it must come forth be sung. But for Elizabeth, it's the visit of her young cousin Mary in her sixth month of pregnancy that breaks her isolation. In the same way that Zechariah's song has been growing within him, something seems to have grown within Elizabeth as well, alongside the child in her womb. After these months of seclusion, she has the capacity to welcome Mary, to perceive the divine within her, just as she attunes to the divine movement in the child within her own self. Luke tells the story this way. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the child leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why has this happened to me, that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. Mary came to her older cousin, likely terrified, after being told by her own divine messenger that she also was with child, but was assured that her older cousin Elizabeth was in her sixth month. Because Elizabeth had the space to welcome the mystery, to quietly tend the sacred, she was able to attune to the young woman at her door in a unique way. She could bear witness to the miracle inside of each of them. I I think of her pronouncing the blessing over Mary that Zechariah was unable to pronounce over the people coming out of the temple. Elizabeth is pronouncing a powerful blessing over her young cousin. And 
that blessing seems to give Mary the confidence she needs to accept her call to be the mother of Jesus, to proclaim that truth herself. As soon as Elizabeth finishes speaking those words, Mary sings her own song, her Magnificat. And is it any wonder then that Mary chooses to remain there in Elizabeth's home for the early months of her own pregnancy? She's found a place and a person of sanctuary, a space and a mentor for engaging the sacred process happening within herself that could help prepare her for all that was to come. And I can't help but believe that those five months of seclusion in some way equipped Elizabeth to be that mother. Of course, the Christmas narratives aren't the only examples in our tradition that speak to the power of silence and withdrawal as a tool for spiritual preparation and empowerment. Of course, Jesus spent the first 40 days of his ministry in seclusion in the wilderness. And after he emerged from it, he regularly withdrew from the crowds to practice quiet and to pray. And the value of silence is one that spiritual seekers beyond the Jewish or Christian traditions have honored as valuable. Gandhi famously practiced a day of silence every week. Even in the busiest seasons when he was regularly being called upon to give speeches, to advocate for the needs of his people, he refused to speak and break his practice of silence every Monday. He knew he needed the, daily, the weekly rhythm of a day to be quiet to empower his speech and advocacy in the rest of his active life. So he spoke about this practice once, saying this, there's a perceptible drop in blood pressure when I observe silence. Medical friends have therefore advised me to take as much silence as I can. There is no doubt whatsoever that after every silence, I feel recuperated and have greater energy for work. The output of work during silence is much greater than when I am not silent. Not only did Gandhi recognize his times of silence relaxed him, helped him focus, he also recognized the ways they helped him tune into the sacred. The divine radio is always singing if we could make ourselves listen to it, he said. But it's impossible to listen without silence. So how might this speak to us today? I don't know about you, but for me, a meditation on Elizabeth, Zechariah, Mary, all of whom spent the earliest months before the miraculous birth they were to participate in, in some space of quiet, is an invitation to find my own spaces of quiet and contemplation, like Steele was inviting us into, right? <laughs> in the midst of this busy Advent season. <laughs> yeah. The truth is, for most of us, the month of December is anything but calm and quiet, right? In our culture, the weeks between Thanksgiving and December 25th are often like a wild blast of activity. And some of these may feel fun and festive and celebratory, hanging the decorations, decorating the cookies, attending the parties, shopping, wrapping, but they don't make a lot of space for an actual space. Those are more connected to the traditions that have been built up around Christmas rather than the core idea at the center of it. And what do we think that core idea is? For me, the heart of the Christmas story is the hope we're not alone. 
amidst unrelenting violence in our world, persistent injustice, cynicism, heartbreak, we proclaim we are not left to our own devices. The hope of the season is that our prayers are somehow indeed heard, like the prayers of a couple over decades, like the prayers of the people of God over centuries who were longing for breakthrough and deliverance, like the angels declared to our spiritual ancestors. The hope of Christmas is that our prayers are heard and they land somewhere and a divine heart is moved on our behalf and longs to draw close to us. At Christmas, we ponder the way that that closeness comes through both the dramatic at times like angel appearances, season of imposed muteness, miraculous pregnancies, but also through the very earthy and ordinary, the kick of a baby in the womb, a journey seeking refuge, the power of seeing another and seeing the sacred in them, and having being seen, having the sacred in them. But if we're going to notice those spaces of inbreaking, if we're going to be attuned to that sacred in our midst, we too need space to be quiet. We need moments of contemplation. We need experiences of solitude and seclusion. And no, I'm not talking about five months, not even five days, but perhaps each of us in this season can consider how we might engage the next few weeks in a way that connects with that mystery at the heart of this season. Can we get up 15 minutes, 20 minutes earlier than we normally would for a time to listen in silence, quiet reflection? Can we think about our lunch breaks differently during this time? Can we take time after work to just turn off the phone, turn off the devices, pause from the flood of information and be in the quiet before dinner? For those of us for whom the season is constantly calling us into busy activity, what would it look like to commit to some daily practice, however brief, of quiet and contemplation? For me, it's often helpful in engaging with these kind of practices to have tools to lead that engagement, and that's why we're offering a couple this year. Um, we do have those Advent calendars in the back. Each of them has a daily very brief prompt. We're also sharing those on, in the Facebook group. So if that's an easier way to interact with them, there's an opportunity um, to take one little practice a day that I think is also an opportunity to reflect around. Um, the theme of that calendar is practicing joy in the midst of a weary world. We also are sharing that devotional that Chris was talking about. If you want a little bit more deeper engagement, it's a beautiful devotional. Um, from our friends at Reservoir Church. It's um, an opportunity, it's like a digital ebook you can go through. Um, and there's these readings each day. They're very brief, but there's an opportunity to read a little scripture, to reflect on it, to have a prayer practice, all along the theme of connecting with the God who is always speaking, which to me seems a lot like what Gandhi was talking about, about listening to the divine radio. Perhaps engaging it might help us to tune into that divine radio frequency. However you engage it, I encourage all of us to find spaces this Advent 
not just for the festive busyness, but also for the encounter of mystery. May all of us this Advent be instructed by the wisdom of Elizabeth, and may we find space to pause, collect, ponder. And as we do, may we be heartened by our own connection with the miracles happening around us. Amen. We're going to take a moment just to be quiet. So I'm going to invite you into silence for a minute or two. We thank you for the miracle of the heart of this season that you do hear us, that you do long to draw close, that you have and that you still are calling. Would you open up our hearts, our minds, our, our schedules this season to find those places of quiet. And might we, like Elizabeth, be moved by our times of seclusion and be prepared not only to perceive um, the ways that you are moving and coming, but also to speak and to pronounce the blessings when called to praise. We're just going to take about seven minutes um, to break into some small groups, as we always do, to just have a little chance to reflect together. Um, and so we'll do that very briefly, and then we'll come back for closing worship. Um, so here's a few questions that you could talk about or whatever is feeling live for you. Um, what do you find interesting about the muteness of Zechariah? 
the seclusion of Elizabeth? What, what strikes you with that happening? Or have you had times of practicing silence or solitude and what's that been like for you? Or finally, how are you thinking about how you might want to engage those practices this Advent? Any of those things we could talk about or whatever else feels live for you. So we're just going to gather with you know, three or four people um, around you and, uh, and then we'll go ahead and talk for about seven minutes and then come back and, for closing worship.